Good morning, church. I'm shocked at how many people are here. I just, I, you know, last night my wife and I were going on a walk about, uh, uh, about midnight with our dog around the block. And just in the street that's right next to ours, it's sort of a slope, you know, down 80th. And there was a car that was abandoned just right in the middle of the road, diagonally. And we, we were told that this happens, and we had not seen it yet. And so there was the freak-out car abandonment thing. And uh, the funny thing about that was it was on a hill. They could have just let gravity push it along to the side just 100 feet and have it parked. Rather, they decided right there they were going to leave it. So uh, that was fun. Thank you guys for that high entertainment. Um, uh, we are starting a series today, and uh, I would just like to say a word of prayer for God to... Uh, Bless this series. Would you bow your heads with me? God, I think just the fact that we're going to be talking about giving and uh, money and uh, the complexities there and the history there, uh, it just makes me a little bit anxious. And so I want to confess that and uh, ask you to sort that out for me personally as I engage this topic. I pray for your hand on this series. And I pray that it would be a special moment in our uh, church uh, in this season and you would use it in uh, powerful and unforeseen and fruitful ways. And I pray that um, we would uh, draw life and help from uh, your truths and your presence at this time. Uh, God, we bring ourselves to you and we open ourselves to you. Do your work and do the things that only you can do. You know the things that are visible. You know the things that are hidden. Search our hearts and know us and help us. We look to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, We want to start with a topic called trust. And I want to start with a story. My mom, when I was growing up, she told me that uh, God is calling me to be a doctor. And I believed her and I picked ophthalmology. I uh, was interested in it. Uh, but all along, my, when my mom was telling me that, there was this other theme in my life that was developing and growing and impossible to ignore. And that was my fascination uh, with God and the stuff of God. And so I brought, that, I brought both themes with me to the University of Michigan. And it was there that I heard a preacher uh, preaching on the diag, on the uh, outside center of campus, uh, Preacher Mike. And... Uh, And I heard him, and I said to myself, if I could communicate the gospel as well as Mike, God, I will preach. And that was freshman year, and by senior year, I was uh, going to uh, seminary, graduate school, to study, to be a pastor. Now, I followed Mike to his church. He had a church there. And there I just soaked everything in, and I grew and I grew. But I also grew up there. Uh, There was a financial scandal and an adultery uh, that happened there during my junior and senior year there. And so my hero and my perception were dashed. Uh, I learned two things. I learned that sex is a thing, and I learned that money is a thing. And so I grew up and uh, learned some hard lessons. Now, I remember at that time when I was learning those two things, I remember saying to myself, God, 
if I become a pastor, you better make sure that never happens to me. And I promised I will never get into a money or sex scandal ever as a pastor. And so I will save that for when I'm not a pastor anymore, I guess. (laughs) Ha ha, joke, funny. (laughs) Now, I think talking about money is really boring and it's dull. What's interesting is when the Bible talks about the love of money. I think that's really interesting. The Bible says the word, mentions the word 733 times, but it mentions the word give 2,285 times. So money is boring, but giving money, that's really interesting because we love money, right? Tensions are building. Um, I was getting my haircut this week, and uh, my barber, she's kind of gregarious. She likes to tell me everything. And, uh, but she's never asked me a question. I've just noted that. She knows nothing about me. But this week, I decided to tell her, and I told her I'm a pastor. And the first question she asked me was, how much do you make? <laughs> how much do pastors make? And uh, I got red and flushed and, uh, you know. I forget what I said. It was, it was a, a surprise. Uh, why does money have a direct link to our hearts? Why do we love money? And when we are after money, what are we really after? What's the thing that we want beyond the money? Because I think money is a means to an end. It's a symbol, right? So we want to address some of these things. Five sermons about giving, we're calling it. I'm going to give you a quick uh, synopsis of the five. Uh, The first, the purpose of this series uh, today is that trust is a thing. Trust is a really big thing. And so we're spending actually three weeks talking about trust. Pastor Kevin last week talked about how God is trustworthy, that when he makes promises, it's different than anybody else's promises because he alone is fully worthy of our trust. Today, we'll talk about trust again. Uh, And then next week, we're going to talk about what it means for us to be entrusted. What does it mean for us to be trusted by God? That we might grasp at being trustworthy. So that's three weeks on trust. And uh, after that, uh, we're going to... I think this is going to be the climax of the series. We're going to talk about legacy. You know, the first commandment in the Bible is that we uh, procreate, that fill the earth. And then the last command Jesus gave us was to make disciples. And then in between these two commands, every good leader in the Bible, at some point they turn their attention beyond themselves to their legacy. Who are they passing the baton to? What will remain after I am gone? And of course, Jesus talked about this, that we want to be investing our lives in things that will remain beyond our very short lives because our lives are just like a mist, right? And we have that instinct. And so we will talk about this idea of legacy, that in our heart of hearts, we want to give beyond ourselves and we want to create something, invest in things that will outlast, outlive us. And so we're going to have seven very special guests up here, and they will be uh, sharing uh, with me, along with me, about uh, what, 
what life is like looking back, what was worthy of giving to, and why they chose to give to this church, and why they're still here, and what do they see. And I think it's going to be kind of a special Sunday. And so um, if you have to miss one of the five, which I hope you don't have to, don't miss uh, February 23rd. That's going to be a, a special one to go down in the books. And then after that, we will talk about the idea of joy, that a core tenant uh, aspect of Joy is being a giver, that when we give, we are more blessed or happy, that even Oprah agrees that giving makes us happy. I just read an article this week. uh, It was uh, Psychology Today talking about how when we give away money, it has this long-term effect of creating, uh, increasing our capacity for joy. We actually are happier, and, and the secular world is recognizing that giving is a better way to live than just trying to get. Right? And then we will end with the topic of power. How power is something that we all have. And power by itself is neutral. But the very best use of power is to give power away to others who have less power than us. To speak on their behalf. To influence them. And to empower them to live better lives. So that will be the series. And a lot of this will feel a little bit indirect to money, but it will directly connect to money uh, because uh, out of the same heart and, and mindset that allows us to do power and legacy and joy and trust well, we are also giving. And that's what money is. Money is an indicator of our hearts. Okay? And at the end of the series, what I would like for all of us is to uh, live lives that are open and generous and happy and focused. I would like us to believe in our church more, believe in this organization, believe in our mission, uh, and that you will give money to it, that you will invite people to our church, and you will invite people into your homes. Okay, so that's what we'll be doing for the next Five weeks. Now, uh, half of this sermon I'm going to use to set up the series, and then we'll have a shorter sermon at the end. Then, uh, for time's sake, we'll have to do that. I want to uh, start here with an acknowledgement section. When I'm talking about money, I have to acknowledge these three things, and I think you'll appreciate it. The first I would call a conflict of interest. You may not. Uh, have thought about this, but my salary and my success come directly from the numerical and financial growth of this church. And I do that by using, invoking the name of the Lord. That's weird, isn't it? I mean, you think about it. If I do well as a professional Christian, right? I'm up here trying to be a Christian. And, uh, and then more people come. You brought a friend to hear Peter and then they come, and then they give money. We count their head and their dollars, and then that gets credit back to me. People say, how? Peter's doing a good job. And then, out of the money they give, they pay me a paycheck. And I did that by using the name of the Lord. That whole thing just rubs me funny. And I just acknowledge off the start that there's a conflict of interest in there for me. 
Uh, the Apostle Paul felt the same way about it. So if you read his letters, you hear him kind of making disclaimers and qualifications and doing this awkward dance around money all the time. He's telling one church, please give, you got to give, give, give. And then he said, oh, but don't give any to me because I've earned my own giving. But even if I was telling you to give to me, don't I deserve that you give to me? And he, he just gets very complex about uh, money. And this is the part about doing vocational, full-time, called ministry that makes me feel a little bit defiled and scummy. This is like when, this is what makes me cringe if I think about people finding out I'm a pastor. I would like them to know specifically what kind of person I am before they find out I'm a pastor because I don't want to be the, you know, the stigma or the reputation. I want to be, uh, have the opportunity to fill that category out for them. Right? So there's that. The first acknowledgement is to say, I acknowledge the conflict of interest in the very idea of my trying to talk about money. Uh, the second acknowledgement I want to make is that we, as a church universal, have a sordid history with money and power and sex. It's just terrible. It's all throughout history. And it's going on in the present, and I imagine that it will happen into the future, into perpetuity. We're going to have problems with leaders and religious leaders and people in power and influence uh, in the way they deal with money, power, and sex. And so as one of those numbered among them, I want to say I'm sorry. I apologize for the history. Uh, It's there. And it is my great hope and commitment that I will never be counted among those who got mixed up and messed up uh, in some sort of questionable uh, scandal. Okay? And please help me to maintain my integrity. But this, the way I think about this is, you know, there's lots of hard marriages, and you know the statistics on marriage, but I still wanted to get married. I took on marriage. I spent the first several years paying thousands of dollars to get counseling, not because we necessarily had problems, but because we wanted to invest in a good marriage. We wanted to preemptively strike at some of the problems that might uh, take us down. And so it's been a great marriage, and I absolutely you know, adore Susie, and God knows she adores me. Um, <laughs> and so I think I would say we're doing really well. Uh, I'm thankful for that. And so in spite of the reputation and the statistics and some of the realities, we've taken it on. And that's the same attitude I bring with me as we take on the topic of money. Yes, there's a sordid history, but yes, we have to take it on. Okay? And then the third acknowledgement I want to make is a little bit more academic here, so track with me here. Uh, I learned um, about this fallacy called the correlation causation fallacy. Okay, it sounds fancier than it is. What it means is that uh, A occurs along with B, but doesn't mean A caused B. So there's a correlation, but there isn't ca- causality between A and B. Just because A came before B doesn't mean A made B happen. Just because A and B exist together, it doesn't mean there might not be a C that's causing both of them to happen, but A and B are unrelated apart from C that's causing both independent things to happen. 
Does that kind of make sense? But I will really help you make sense of it. Uh, there is observable, measurable correlation between the number of pirates, pirates like, ah, pirates, and Al Gore's likability. True. Fact. Google it right now. It's there. There is a correlation between pirates and global temperature, like our average global temperature. And so I was trying to figure this out. The Internet didn't tell me this, but Al Gore is Mr. Like global warming. And so when global warming is actually happening, people believe in Al Gore's credibility more. Therefore, his likability goes up. And there happens to be a correlation with pirates. But here's the question. If the number of pirates are increased, like we go out and we recruit like two more pirates, we throw them into the ocean, uh, will Al Gore be liked more? No. (laughs) And if he is, it's not causality. (laughs) It's correlation, not causality. If we start hating Al Gore... Will the temperature of our planet drop? Or will pirating instances go down? How about this? Does a fever cause illness? No. Uh, Fever is part of an illness sometimes, so there's correlation. But we know that fever doesn't cause an illness. How about short tempers? Do short tempers cause kids to misbehave? Or does misbehavior cause short tempers? See, not all things are so clear. We get complex really fast, and that's why it's easy to commit this fallacy, this correlation, causation fallacy. If you give your money to the church, will you be blessed? Will you be healthy and wealthy and powerful and happy? But you have heard it said, yes? Those are promises that were made. Now, I think religion and power have made fools of many, many people. And the way I understand it, there are circumstances in our lives when we are desperate enough and we want something badly enough that we regress from using our frontal cortex to tapping into our reptilian brain and we just want to survive. Right? And we just want to survive. We're just grasping for things. We become superstitious. How many of you wore Seahawks colors? Did that make a difference? (laughs) And people in power will take advantage of those who are trying to survive by tapping into their superstition by making uniform promises. Yeah? You've seen it done? It happens all the time. And this is what religion does. Religion makes vague promises, uses a text like the Bible to make fuzzy math problem uh, promises and, and say, come to church. I know you're desperate, you're hurting, you're in need. If you give to the church, if you come to church, if you support the church, then, then, and then there's these mathematical, mechanistic, formulaic, promises that people in power have made. And I think it's very, very sad. And it's a fallacy. And it's taking advantage of people. And so uh, I want to say, uh, I'm sorry 
for that. And it's very easy to do from the pulpit. It's very easy to do when you're trying to communicate to a group of people. It's very easy to do when you're in a position where you feel like you have to have answers in a world that's filled with more questions than answers. That fallacy is always right there. We, we commit this fallacy to our kids, to our friends. We give each other very bad advice all the time. But the world isn't so simple. And so I acknowledge my conflict of interest, our sordid history, and this fallacy. The passage that was read for us uh, begins with the word trust. Uh, the trust. The word trust, it means... Uh, a firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of, or as a verb it means, to believe in the reliability, truth, ability, and strength of. If you look it up, it will be some definition in this context. Uh, I mean, in, uh, we're using some similar words here like this. But verse 5 really kind of illuminates what the Bible means by trust. The Bible is not asking us to just be trusting people. Nope. It's not asking us to trust a principle or a rule or a formula. But it's asking us to trust a person. Trust in the Lord. And this is the direction of trust all the time. These verbs have direction. And this word is pointed directly at the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Trust is relational. The object of trust is not some rule, but it is a person, a real three-dimensional person that we are in relationship with. And let me say this. This is the cornerstone, the capstone, that will measure the squareness of the whole building that we are building on this idea of trust. If we are talking about trust, we're talking about relating to the person. And if we take the person out of it, the building now is start, starting to get tweaked. It's not going to be square anymore. The walls aren't going to be 90 degrees. The walls aren't going to be plumb. The beams aren't going to be able to bear the weight. It's not going to be an integrous building. The building won't make sense. It'll collapse. Whatever worldview or framework you're building in your head is going to collapse unless you understand that the object of trust is the point. He's the one that is trustworthy because verse 5 goes on to say, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So by, by the very function of the word trust, it's implying that there is a gap between what I would call your understanding or your perception. And then there's this promise made by this person. But we live in between our perception of reality. That's our own understanding. And then the promises of this person. But we live straddling here in the gap. And what fills the gap, what allows us to live in this gap, is the trustworthiness of the object of our trust. That is the Lord, God himself. He has to be a trustworthy person or we have no choice but to trust our own understanding, lean on our own understanding, or we take a huge risk. But there's nothing that's going to make sure that the promises are fulfilled. This, you tracking with me? 
There is our own understanding. There's a gap. That's why we have to exercise our trust muscles. If there is no gap, trust isn't required. Right? And what makes trust worth it? Why we are making a sound decision when we decide to trust in these promises? It's because the promises are made by the Lord. The whole building is resting on the cornerstone of God's character. His ability to actualize the promises that he makes. If he doesn't have the reliability or the truthfulness or the goodness or the love or the power to answer his own, to live up to his own promises, we shouldn't trust him. We would be dumb to trust him. We would have no choice but to lean on our own understanding. And so the central question in this whole idea of trust is who is God? Does God love you? Okay, if he loves you, is he powerful? Is he able? Yeah? Is he going to do it? In other words, we're asking the question, is he reliable? Is he truthful? We're asking the question of trust about the person. Okay, because we live in the gap between perception and promise. Check this out. Verse 9 says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all of your produce. Now, whenever the Bible talks about uh, produce, it's not talking about food. It's talking about money because that was their money. You notice verse 9, from your wealth, from the first of your produce. Whenever the Bible talks about sheep and goats, it's not talking about livestock. It's talking about money. Okay, it's like people, you know, a couple of thousand years from now will look at us primitive people in 2014 and say, you know when those people, they talked about stocks and bonds? They're not talking about paper. They're talking about money. Okay, so that's what's happening here. But why first fruits? Why, when the Bible talks about giving to God, does it talk about first fruits? Um, I've trapped myself into this deal where I'm having to give $5 a tooth to my kids. It's pretty high. I know. I've, I've done the survey. Most parents don't give 5 bucks. It's, it's a lot lower than that, but uh, we've settled on 5 So my wife and I have started collecting $5 bills because we rarely have $5 bills. And so I have this box on my desk uh, are my kids in here? They're not supposed to know where the stack is. Um, we... oh. Sorry. The truth will set you free. Uh. <laughs> and so we have this stack of five dollars. I should have thought about that. Um, we have this stack of five dollar bills. And I don't want to give five dollars. It seems too high to me. But... I, every time there's a tooth lost, uh, which I give to uh, subsidize what the tooth fairy who exists is giving. Uh, <clears throat> I search through my stack of $5 bills to find the crispest, newest $5 bill. You know the kind of Paper, paper money that's like so new that it's, it's kind of printed and stuck together so that like you grab it and it just comes off as one bill, but it's actually like two or three bills. I love, I love giving that. 
because I, I just, I'm a dad. I don't want to give the five, but I want to give everything. I want my kids to just be happy. And the thought that they're going to be like, oh my gosh, this, this oh, it's, so, it's so new. Just that thought, you know, makes, makes, drives me to do that. And if I get a hold of a $5 bill that's new, I will put it in the folder or something and I'll bring it home and I'll save it because I know the kids will enjoy that. You know what that is? That's the heart of somebody who wants to give first fruits. Because the whole first fruit deal is, even though it's not the most, why would you give just the tenth when you have the whole 90% to account for? Because when you are giving the very best and the very first of what you have, you're not actually giving money. But the money is emblematic of your whole self. And that's what, the if I just like take out a crumpled, oh, be done, away from me, you annoying children. I can give the exact same amount, but search from my heart for the crispest, newest bill. And in doing that, I am giving my kids the whole of myself. And with each, each search for the perfect bill, I'm making a promise. I love you. I will always love you. And, and I want to give you everything. And I, want, I don't want you to ever be in need. And I don't want you to suffer any unnecessary pain. Of course, I want you to grow and I want you to mature. But I want to protect you. My instinct is to just preserve you. You belong to me and I belong to you. And I will do everything in my power. I'm for you. And that's the heart that's being expressed. That's first fruits. And so why verse 9 suddenly talks about money? It's not suddenly talking about money. This is the parallel verse to verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Honor the Lord. That's trust the Lord from your wealth. That's the way you express your trust in the Lord with all your heart is by giving from your first fruits. Have you ever loved someone? Have you ever treasured somebody else's joy? Don't you know what that feeling is like? The first fruits has nothing to do with money. It has everything to do with your heart. It has everything to do with the whole of yourself. And the scriptures teach again and again and again that one of the primary ways that we emblematically give our whole selves to God is by giving him first fruits. And the ultimate way that God expressed his love for us was by giving us the literal whole of himself, by giving us his son to die on the cross for us. And by the giving of his son, God is saying, you have me. What more shall I withhold from you? What more shall I not give to you? I have given you everything. God is a giver. He wants us to give. Now, verse 7 names this tension and says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. The opposite of trust, the opposite of honoring God and giving Him our whole self is control. It's wisdom in our own eyes. It's looking at our perspective, our own understanding and saying, this is all there is. This wisdom that I have, that's it. The promises don't speak to anything. 
All I have is my perception. And God says, don't be wise. Don't, don't lean on your own understanding. Don't trust in the wisdom of your own eyes only. Because when you do that, then you will become controlling and you begin to live this crooked life. And so we have verse 6. He will make your path straight, implying that. Implying what? That our tendency, if we trust just what we see, is our lives become crooked. Just we, we just we just we can't draw straight. We can't think straight. Our, our just our heart, our wisdom, our mind, the, every little decision it starts getting crooked. It's twisting and it's curling in ourselves, in on itself, as one of our desert fathers have said. Closed, afraid, proud, insecure, tired, calculating. And God here says, trust, when we learn what trusting God is and we begin to give him our whole self, it begins to open us up. When we were curling in, being wise in our own eyes, we start opening up. And it talks about our bones getting healed and our vats getting filled and fresh air and fresh supplies and fresh troops coming in. And there's this kind of movement and flow in our life. And there's all this giving and taking because we're not controlling and predicting anymore. There is a greater economy that we are able to experience because God is a greater person. He's got greater vision, greater wisdom, greater power, greater goodness, greater love, a greater perspective on your life than you do. And there is a way to live that way. We don't have to be in survival, scarcity, calculating mode. We don't have to see other people's needs as a threat. We don't have to get stuff and collect stuff and be takers and matchers. We can be givers. Out there, out there, you know what the church is and what the preachers and motivational speakers and Christian TV stations and, and spiritual gurus have done is they've taken this idea of trusting in the Lord. That is this very personal relationship where he loves us and we love him and he's giving himself to us and we in response are giving ourselves to him he they take this principle they take it completely out of the relational context and they try to principalize it legalize it mechanize it and formalize it rather than talking about relationships they talk about rules if you do this your life will go this way You will succeed if you do this. Think positive thoughts. Then you will live a positive life. Send out good karma out there and good karma will come back to you. Is that how life works? Absolutely not. There is a way that it taps into a body of truth. But at the center of that body of truth is a person. And this is what makes Christianity unique to life philosophies and religion it's not about superstition it's not about sending good vibes out there it's not it's not about adding to the cosmic pot so that when you need it's your turn to draw from that same pot 
You can tithe and give all you want. doesn't mean you're going to be wealthy and healthy. doesn't mean you'll never get cancer. doesn't mean that your children will do well. It doesn't mean that you're going to live a long and prosperous life. Because by the very definition of what trusting a person is, means that you're going to be living in the gap most of the time. But your faith is in the person rather than your perception. And, and, God says, how can you trust me? Because not only am I giving you my promises in the face of your perception, but I'm going to give you in the person of Jesus Christ, a Savior who is standing with you in your pain and suffering. And the very same promises I spoke to my son who stands with you in suffering, I give to you. And you can see the trajectory of his life, that he was able to scorn the shame of the cross for the joy set before him. Therefore, you in the midst of your pain will be able to scorn your pain because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. And so the trail, the pathway that he blazed is your path. So not only do we have a promise, but we have this person who is personal and with us. It's not just some naked, impersonal principle that you are trusting. But it is the person of Jesus Christ. Let me end with a story. Um... I grew up in a church-going home. I wouldn't say it was a Christian home. But it was, you know, it was a a shame-based culture. And it was a culture that was uh, Christianized. But it was built on a culture of superstition. And so there was a lot of superstitious uh, and shame-based giving in the church that I grew up in. And so it was this Presbyterian church. But there is this... Uh, this giant entryway uh, to the giant sanctuary. It was a mega church. And next to the main entrance was this huge white wall. And the wall was covered with this uh, metal filing system for tiny little cardboard envelopes. And the envelopes all had three spaces in a row that you fill in. And it would last for like two months or something like that. And then you get a new envelope. But the envelope, you have to write in your name, the occasion for the giving, and how much you're giving. And at the end of the service, every service ended with all of those envelopes being collected, brought up to the front of the sanctuary like this, and somebody would stand there and read these three items for each and every envelope. So it was using shame tactics to try to get people to give. But it was not, of course, that wasn't ever explicitly uh, stated that way. It was under the guise of accountability because we don't want there to be money being stolen. And so if your name has been read and the amount been read, it's been recorded, it has to be accounted for because it was, it was an immigrant church, so most of the giving was in cash. And it was a way to say we are publicly trusting God. It was really awkward for me. Um, I was turned off to God and the church and leadership and man in general. And I stopped going to church uh, in that church. And I moved by myself to a different church. And uh, I stopped giving. Uh, I stopped tithing, I should say. I still gave a little bit. But I stopped giving from my first fruits. And I didn't give my first fruits for many years, even though I worked 
all the way from sixth grade all the way up to this day. Um, but then I got married, and uh, the first year of marriage was really, really hard. We got married in 1997, and it was a difficult year for us financially. I was planting a church, and I was raising my own funds. I wasn't drawing a salary from the church. I was writing this monthly newsletter called The Holy Kiss, because Paul said greet each other with a holy kiss. And I was raising about $1,500 a month. I really needed to raise about 3000 but I was only able to raise about 1500 a month. And Susie was working at a private school teaching Spanish and computer, and she was making about $19,000 a year before taxes. And after taxes, it was about $14,000. And we didn't have health insurance or anything like that. Our rent was $1,000 a month exactly. And top of that, we had to pay utilities and food and clothing and, you know, regular expenses uh, for a living. That first year, Susie got very sick, very, very sick. And uh, she became covered in these blisters and just lesions from the top of her earlobes, from the top of her ears, all the way down to even the bottom of her feet. And uh, it was really hard to see that happening to Susie the first year. And we didn't have money, so we kept waiting for it to go away, and it didn't go away. And, you know, she was 21. I just had turned 24. We didn't know at all how the world worked. And so we walked down the street because we had seen a sign for a dermatologist. And uh, uh, without Susie knowing, I went to the doctor and I asked him if he would um, uh, service us pro bono and we were turned down. And so uh, nothing happened over there, no help there. And then we, uh, that night came home and uh, that was one of the darkest nights of my life. And while Susie slept, um, I held her hand and um, I wept. And I wrestled with myself and with God. And I felt like a failure. And Susie's parents were not supportive of the wedding. And so they were not somebody I was willing to turn to for help because I didn't want to hear that I told you so. And uh, here is my bride uh, covered in blisters. And I just felt like a total powerless failure. And that night as I wept and I prayed... Uh, the thought that came to me, and uh, in total honesty, I would tell you, I don't know if it was God, and I'm not sure if it was my old superstitious self thinking about if I, you know, wasn't being helped because I didn't feel God was helping me uh, because I wasn't tithing or whatever, but I uh, immediately thought about this idea of tithing, and I made the decision that night that I was going to start tithing the next day. And so... The next morning, I uh, told Susie that I uh, was thinking that maybe we should tithe, and we agreed that we're going to start tithing. And uh, that same week, we, uh, I drove Susie to an inner-city clinic where there was a retired doctor that was working, and we got a steroid shot from him for $40, I remember. And Susie became better, and all her uh, blisters and lesions subsided. And to this day, she doesn't have a single scar I wish we had taken pictures of uh, uh, some of those because that would, you know, good posterity. But um, so we started tithing, and then a couple of years later, we decided to increase our giving 1% every year. And so we did that for seven years, and so we gave up to 17% uh, of our first fruits. 
And then we moved in our 18th year to the 10-10-10 model that I had read about. And the 10-10-10 model is what I uh, really love. I've been doing it now. Uh, we're married 17 years. So for 10 years, we've been doing this. Is where we give, we tie the 10% of our income to the church uh, for the church to use for her mission. And then we use 10%. We call it a community fund. And we use that to give to anybody all around us. Like if you came to me and you said, Peter, I'm in dire straits. I need $1,000. I'll be like, hold on, let me check. Community fund, I got 2500 left. No problem. Here you go, $1,000. And I've done this many times. And I'm happy to do it. Oh, are you feeling down? Do you need me to take you out to really good sushi? No problem. I'll take you out because I have this community fund. Right? 10% of my income. And then the final 10% goes to savings. And so 10, 10, 10, and we live and pay taxes out of the uh, 70%. And it serves as a, these, these numbers, they serve as guardians of my values. You understand? I don't serve the numbers. I'm not, I'm not laboring under this percentage. But they serve to remind me that I belong to the Lord. And that everything I have is God's. And the way I remember that, the way I feel that on a visceral human flesh and blood level is by giving money. That's as simple as that for me. And then 10%. I belong to my people. I belong to my heart community. And so I give uh, uh, my whole self to my community by tithing uh, from that. And then I want to care for my family. I belong to my family. And so I do that by uh, saving 10%. I learned a uh, new economic term in the last two weeks as I was uh, studying for this sermon. And the the term is Veblen effect. Anybody know the Veblen effect if you studied economy? No? Okay, Veblen effect is a consumer phenomenon that defies the regular and normal laws of economics where people purchase very expensive items on the unfounded belief that these items are worth more than they actually are. And the classic example that, you know, uh, dictionaries love to give is the proverbial diamond ring. If you've ever invested in a diamond industry, you know they're worth less than what you think they're worth. And we are told over and over again that it's worth uh, two months wages but you know um, if you just look at the charts you'll see it's not <laughs> so that's a classic example of the veblen effect in the bible when the uh, scripture writers talk about the gift and the price that god the father paid to win us over to buy us and literally to buy our trust They call it foolishness. That it was foolish of God to pay the price he paid for our trust. To have our whole selves be open and available to him. And here God declares, my economy is very different. And it's the foolishness of God that is wiser than the wisdom of man. And there is a kind of unlocking of God's universe as I learn to trust and give. And I tell my story to you not to manipulate you or to get you to do the same thing. I'm not trying to do that at all. But I am challenging you to ask the question, 
Is God trustworthy? Who is he? Who is God to you? And what has he done to show you that he is the Lord, worthy of your trust in him with the whole of your heart and for you to lean on his wisdom rather than your own so that he may make straight your paths, may heal your bones, to fill your barns and overflow your vats with new wine according to how he sees fit. Would you think about him in that question?